0: Meg Massey and Ben Robell, co-authors of Letting Go, are today's guests. In their book, they lay out an innovative model for more participatory investing and grant making for impact investors and philanthropists, giving recipients control. They'll also share insights about their superpower, empathy, which motivates their work. Ben, Meg, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation today. I'm, I'm just thrilled to have you. Uh, and I'm so excited to talk about your book because Letting Go, I, I think this is one of the most profound impact investing insights uh, I've re- read in a decade. And so it, it's just time to elevate this conversation, I think. Um, Meg, maybe you would just take a minute and tell people about the fundamental premise of the book So that I don't mess it up.
1: Sure. Uh, Letting go. The the premise is really in the um, in the subtitle, uh, how philanthropists and impact investors can do more good by giving up control. And in it, we talk about how uh, how funders can and should um, integrate the people that they're hoping to uh, serve and support with their funding into the decision making process.
0: That is a, a key principle. Ben, do you want to add anything?
2: Sure. So um when we started writing the book, we we had to decide do we want to focus on the world of philanthropy and grant making? Or the world of impact investing and um, funding social entrepreneurs, and we we made what may have been a foolish decision to focus on both. Could have been two books, but um, you know the two worlds are very different. Often, people who fund nonprofits and people who fund social entrepreneurs aren't necessarily speaking to each other or learning best practices from each other. But at the same time, you know what we kind of what we say in the book is that a lot of the general principles are the same. Both uh, philanthropy and impact investing are at heart problem solving. You know, you identify a problem, you look for people who can solve it, and then you make a decision about who should receive resources. And uh, in both cases, uh, we make the case, we tell the history of the idea of participatory funding, both participatory grant making, and then this newer idea of participatory impact investing, which, like Meg said, involves asking people with lived experience of the problem to weigh in on funding decisions.
0: Now, Village Capital uses... um a variation on this with respect to allocating capital in its portfolios, right? So the the participants in the cohort make the decision about who gets the money at the end of a, what is it, an eight or 12-week program? I'm forgetting now how long it is. But but, um, that's a little bit different, isn't it, than what you're talking about here? Uh, But did your experience at Village Capital guide you to this insight or... Help 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 us draw the connection, Ben, between your Village Capital sure. experience in the book.
2: Sure. So Village Capital, for I, I, I'm sure your your listeners are familiar. Um, the the model we have is called peer selected investment, and we bring together twelve entrepreneurs that are working in the same sector, but not direct competitors. Um, often, you know. 12 African entrepreneurs working on fintech, for instance, we put them through a training investment readiness program. Everyone gets a benefit out of it. But at the end of the program, uh, the group uh, engages in this, this very open, transparent ranking process and ultimately selects two of their peers to receive funding from our, from our fund. Um, so it's not, so, so yes, so, so that idea, the mechanics of it um, are actually more about asking social entrepreneurs to make decisions rather than, let's say, people living in a specific community or people with, uh, you know, people with disabilities like we've seen with some other participatory funding models. But the, the rationale, the reasoning behind it is the same. Um, the idea that the reason Village Capital was created by Ross Baird, you know, and, and others early, early on, was because venture capital, um, you know, they argued is a very uh, closed-off, hegemonic uh, sphere uh, where, uh, you know, a few people in a few cities are making decisions about our collective future, and ultimately, that's the thinking behind a lot of this participatory, these participatory processes. You know, philanthropy is largely male, largely white. Uh, largely um, based in a few places, um, and any sort of funding model where the people making decisions aren't necessarily representative of the world at large is where participatory funding can be helpful.
0: Yeah, I I, I think this is, you know, profoundly earth shakingly important. Uh, Meg, tell us a little bit about how you made this connection personally. How did you get from wherever you have been as a journalist to seeing the value of participatory philanthropy and impact investing?
1: Sure. Um, it actually it goes back to before my journalist days when I was a, a very committed English major at Mount Holyoke College and never took one economics class because I figured I, I'm just going to be writing. What, what would I need this for? And my career since then has proven me wrong, but I, um, uh, I was lucky enough to be in kind of the ground floor of pay for success and social impact bonds in the U.S. I had, a, I had a role in the Obama White House where that was part of my portfolio as a policy analyst. From there, I moved to the Urban Institute working um, as a communications lead with their pay for success team. And then um, to the Global Steering Group for Impact Investment as Director of Communications, and in those two roles, um, a lot of what my role ended up being was how how do we explain what we're doing to people outside this room? And because the social sector, I mean, it's it's a it's a wonderful it's a wonderful community in many ways. It's also very insular, and there's a lot of terminology that gets thrown around um, that is. Is that it ends up having an exclusionary impact on the, on certain, on people. If you haven't if you haven't taken an economics class, if you haven't you know worked at a bank or just had any um, professional experience in finance, you know something you know cap you know cap size market share, like these are normal terms for investors, but they can be really intimidating to people who aren't part who don't live and breathe that work. So when I started, I launched my consulting firm in 2019 because I wanted I wanted to help help democratize that conversation. How do we how do we make impact investing not just about what the large institutions should can and should do, but how can we make it about ways that we can really rethink you know at the individual level how we're spending and investing our money and you know globally where is some of, where some of these systems need disruption. Um, and Ben and I were fortunate to connect right around this time, actually at the, um, at the gin conference in Amsterdam. And, um, we we tell the story in the book, but basically we, we had this sense, um, being in that space of this is, this is great. We're all, these are people who are energized. They're talking about things that are really important, but we're, there's a panel on support in sub-Saharan Africa and it's like five white guys from Europe. This isn't like, (laughs) there's a bit of a disconnect there. And so that kind of kicked off our our partnership for the book.
0: Yeah. So what you're suggesting is uh, vitally important. It's profound. Uh, it seems to me the challenge will be implementing this. And, mm-hmm. and I suspect, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I suspect that what we're talking about is a, a spectrum and that we mm-hmm. the the goal is to start moving people along the spectrum. Some have already taken first steps. Uh, They may not have been thinking about it in quite the terms that you are, but they're probably, you know, there is this greater awareness generally of this idea. I'm not sure it's been labeled. I've learned of of it from you. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I like to think I've got my ear to the ground. So I think you've, you've really sort of invented some new language and some new concepts. But in a vague sense, the idea has been out there. So um, how do how do you recommend, and Ben, maybe we can start with you. How do you recommend people begin implementing these principles in their patterns of, and maybe we could ask you to tackle uh, impact investing. We'll ask Meg to maybe talk about <laughs> philanthropy. They're a little bit different and just to break it up a little bit, but 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 how do people implement this in their investing strategies?
2: Sure. Well, um, we like to think of the the spectrum maybe on its side like a, a ladder, um, and there's this image we we use uh, the ladder of participation, um, and essentially it's a it's a way to make the abstract concept of are you involving community members less abstract. And essentially, there are nine rungs, but it can be simplified down to three. Um, at the very bottom, there. A process is not participatory. At the very bottom, you have a process that's not participatory. It's a, you know, you simply make a decision and then. move move on with your life um up in the middle of the ladder is what we call consulting um sometimes it is just worse it's maybe token listening uh where you're saying hey we're going to hold a community meeting we're going to invite folks to join a zoom and, and weigh in on sort of our investment strategy but ultimately there's no teeth to that you know we can ultimately the funder can ultimately make whatever decision they want to make at the top of the ladder the top rungs is true participation and really the distinction there it, it goes beyond listening and it is uh, it means that there is a, a mechanism in place for um, community members for people with lived experience to um, to have a vote on on a decision and and just to you know it could it could be a decision about the the vision and the investment uh, thesis for a fund right at the beginning of a fund it could be a decision about you know how um, how you build a pipeline. Of potential investments, Um, but probably in its purest form, it's going to be a decision about who you invest in. And so uh, we can give some examples over the course of the interview. But we've seen um, we've seen advisory boards um, that have a real vote on on funding decisions. Um, We've seen um, inviting you know creating one or two seats for uh, people from a community on an investment um, panel. Um, but ultimately, it is, uh, yeah, it's it's a really tactical. It's basically creating rules of the game that ensure that there's accountability.
1: Yeah. Um, and just to add to that, one of the challenges with um I think with investing of becoming more participatory versus philanthropy, which I'll uh, get to in a moment, um, there's there's a bit of a misnomer that uh, that impact investing grew out of philanthropy because of the names involved in coining in the term back in um, I believe 2007, but really um, it's traditional finance, right? It's been impact investing has largely been about what you're investing in and not how you're doing it that process. And there's a lot of you know top down you know there's a lot of non-participation baked into some of that decision making which is also baked into traditional investing. So there's, we can speak about this more, but there's, um, there's an opportunity there to kind of um, flip, uh, you know, flip that on its head. Um, on the philanthropy side, uh, the best way to get started, um, well, we will, I'll start by pointing everyone to a resource, uh, participatorygrantmaking.org. This was um, one of the really exciting things to come out of the, the pandemic. Uh, Brad and I were interviewing different participatory grant makers around the world. Um, They started a Google group, which then turned into a Slack community, which went from those dozen people to now over 700 members around the world. Um, And participatory grant making is when, again, the community that would benefit most uh, from the funding has a say in in what gets funded. And there are, we identified two uh, types of participatory grant makers, um, ones that are more issue-based. The Disability Rights Fund is uh, one that we profile and talk about quite a bit in the book. Um, And they grew out of the need to uh, ratify the UN Treaty on the Rights of People with Disabilities in multiple countries around the world where, you know, even on a, you know, you're talking about language barriers, geographic barriers, Plus, within the disability community, there's a ton of diversity. So, those that was only going to work if there was hyper-local strategies. And uh, so, the disability uh, rights committee they spent several years designing a process. But basically, the um, they have a decision-making board that is made up 50% of traditional funders who fund this work and 50% disability rights activists from around the world who are selected by a a third party organization for people with disabilities. And they um, are intentional about how, you know, shuffling people out every, every couple of years, trying to get, you know, a mix of disability um, and other intersecting identities. Um, And that might be, that, that might be the most straightforward, like kind of in its purest form. There are also um, uh, on the, on the issue side, on the place-based side, when you're talking about literally a geographic community, there's examples um, like the Brooklyn Community Foundation, which led a very, um, a very intensive process to identify what uh, the, very, the residents in Brooklyn, which is an incredibly diverse borough. I was kind of surprised reading about it, but it's, I think has something like more people, more countries of birth represented than anywhere else on the world. It's something like that. It's um, amazing. Um, and they went to all those different communities, asked them, what do you wanna see from your community foundation? And they created a participatory grant making program to fund some of their work around um, housing and infrastructure in the city. And in that case, the um, there's a committee uh, made up of residents that makes the decision and their, their board of directors still has to sign off on it, which, you know, we don't necessarily like that as participatory grant making if you're a purist. But um, in that case, they signed they have said yes to everything, including a, um, including a nonprofit that was kind of going to battle with a developer and the developer had friends on the board was, you know, there, there was a ve- if if they had said, no, we're not doing this one, it would have been very clear why, but they, they kept their word.
0: Oh, good. <clears throat> well, th- these are really uh, important concepts. One of the things that I, uh, am engaged with and kind of passionate about is crowdfunding and investment crowdfunding is proving to be different than a lot of other sources of capital in that, uh, women and minorities are getting much closer to their fair share, uh, from crowdfunding, investment crowdfunding. It, it is proving to be quite different. Um, it seems to me it also has an inherent participatory nature to it, right? So if you were uh, you know, a, a developer wanting to do, do a project in an African-American neighborhood, uh, at least the people in the neighborhood, if you're using crowdfunding, would have an opportunity to invest in it. Have you looked at, and I apologize for not finishing the book yet, but have you looked at crowdfunding as a Mechanism for participatory impact investing and how to what be- best practices might be.
1: Yeah, we um, we initially actually had a longer section in the book on on technology and how technology facilitates participation that got trimmed down a lot. Although we'll be sharing it in blogs and stuff going forward. But with equity crowdfunding, which is Ben knows, it's one of my favorite topics. Um, what's really exciting about equity crowdfunding is the way that it can push at the um, some of those like challenges in traditional finance and make it finance more participatory as a whole um, the story that we tell in the book is about a crowd equity crowdfunding platform called fundana and they are for uh, cannabis related startups and they're solving a very clear and ongoing problem which is that the pot is legal in some states, it's not legal in others, it's still, you know, scheduled at the federal level. So most banks and most financial institutions either are legally prevented from giving loans to anything with cannabis in the name, or they just don't want to because they think it's a reputational risk. And you also on top of that have a lot of entrepreneurs who are coming from communities that were negatively impacted by the drug laws, who don't have access to the capital that others might for a friends and family round. And so Fundana has been for, um, we interviewed a, um, an entrepreneur who's going to, who's now the, um, I believe the first, uh, the first black uh, cannabis entrepreneur in Massachusetts to get his license. And he did, he raised around on Fundana. And um, what, and I like that example because again, it's solving, it's solving a really, it's solving a clear problem to do with financing um, when you have these varying state laws um, I also like the hyper local element that, sh- that you mentioned. That it's looking around you and saying, when we when we have friends who don't work in this field, say, okay, well, what can I do? Um, how do I become an impact investor? And there's a very long answer to that, but there's a very short one, and it's to say, you know, where where in your community do you see movement, and how can you support that?
0: Yeah. Well, and and crowdfunding now gives us a great tool for that. Uh, ben, as you look at this from the standpoint of a, a venture capitalist, um, how do you think about crowdfunding as being as addressing you know participatory impact investing?
2: I think it can be helpful um, on the level of small businesses and local community investment. Um, I think when you're talking about just Maybe to throw a little cold water on the idea of with venture capital. If you're looking at seed rounds that are now exceeding five million dollars, I think it's it can be hard to get a crowdfunding up to, up to that level. But I think that the real gap, like Meg said, is in the friends and family round um, and just getting that early start. You know, letting someone try and fail a few times with the next you know an initial fifty to hundred k, it can be really helpful there. Um, and I think that what I'm really excited about is sort of mutations and permutations of what crowdfunding could look like and one of the one of the funds we profile in the book is the Boston Ujima Fund which is uh they built themselves and we haven't disproved it as the the first ever democratic investment fund in the United States and um they um essentially are an investment fund for local small businesses in in um South Boston and anyone can invest in um can put some money into the fund for as little as $50 Um, But the the sort of trick is that um, they have this very inclusive, intentional voting process for what they should invest in, and only people who live in those communities get a vote. or people who identify as having been displaced from those communities by gentrification, which is, which is a nice touch. Um, they also have an inverted capital stack. And I think that when you take that idea of crowdfunding and you combine it with some other innovative financial structures, you can get some really creative and inclusive models for community investment.
0: Well, I, it is exciting to think about what, what can be done with a more participatory approach and it's not hard to begin to imagine different, uh, Outcomes uh, resulting from participatory uh, approaches. Um, as Ben, as you look at uh, your life and experience, you, you've clearly been uh, very successful and you're doing some really cool work now. Uh, what do you think of as your superpower?
2: <laughs> so, um- It's a great question. Um, and also I I know your book. Um, I think that I had a really interesting experience coming out of college. I grew up in, uh, you know, upper middle-class suburbs in New York of New York city. Um, and I, um, and then after college, my first job um, I sort of got by happenstance was as um, an intern for the NAACP, the National Office of the NAACP, and I quickly became a speechwriter and then the chief speechwriter. And I ended up traveling the country and seeing basically, you know, on the ground rallies, protests, activism, organizing for you know communities of color. And I was often the only only white person in the room, um, which is just not an experience that I think a lot of my peers have ever had. Um, And I don't know how to translate that into a superpower, but I think a level of empathy, a level of humility, understanding that while, you know, I have some great ideas, they're just ideas, and there's a lot of other perspectives out there. um, And it's hard to see that when everyone around you looks like you. Um, And I think that that has always sort of um, made it hard for me. Part of the reason that that I started with this book is I was never quite able to decide, like, what's my... Issue, You know, in in Washington, D.C., everyone has an issue. And there are so many things that I think are important from criminal justice reform to health equity to education access. And, you know, ultimately, I'd realized, well, my issue is just making sure that um, that, you know, the people who are affected by those issues have a chance to to shape how how we solve them. Um, So many. I'll stop there.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, a brilliant and critically important uh, superpower. And we'll we'll come back and, and explore that a little bit more. But I, it's, it's really an important message. Meg, what do you think of as your superpower?
1: Ooh, yeah, I was trying to trying to think of something as Ben was talking. Um, I think. I'm going to also say empathy, but I have a different life experience than Ben. So I'm coming, I I mean it in a slightly different way. Um, I also, um, I also grew up in a, in a, you know, upper middle-class suburb outside Boston and never quite felt like I fit in there. And part of that was that there was a lot of very visible um, shows of wealth. And it was one reason why I resisted studying economics. Um, But then as Job after, job after job that I was in that became something so important that that became something central to the job i mean at the white house as in the budget office right you're not you're not avoiding anything there and eventually and i used to kind of have the imposter syndrome of like why am i here what am i doing here this isn't i don't know what i'm doing and the way that i kind of came out of that and found my path to doing what i'm doing now Was to recognize that like most most people don't know what they're doing, and just because just because you you've read a book, you you've read that book, you have some knowledge, you don't have all the answers. Um, But I found myself talking as I was trying to explain what I was doing to other people, and I was trying to you know at least make it make it funny or crack jokes or give weird examples from Taylor Swift songs that might (laughs) illustrate what I was doing. And I was like, everything, nothing that I'm just, nothing that we work on um, as impact investors or in this field is rocket science. It's just a matter of telling the right story. And when, you know, when Ben and I met and decided to write this book, it was really felt like, you know, all that storytelling led up to telling this you know, one story in book, in book form. And hopefully we can continue doing that because I think, yeah, I see my superpower as having, having that ability to help people tell their stories.
0: Yeah. Well, that is a, uh, that's a great superpower uh, and I wish I had it (laughs) as one Who does that? I wish I were better at this, but, uh, I, I enjoy it. I share your passion for doing this and try to, I'll try to learn more from you before we're done here, but uh, Ben, I think empathy is a, a particularly uh, important superpower. It's a skill, it's a, a, a trade, it's a strength that, uh, we should all try to, to build on. And I don't come at it very naturally. Um, I was raised, um, in a little bit more of a, you know, judgmental kind of choose the right kind of environment where I was more trained to judge than to empathize, than to try to understand. And, and so it's been kind of a lifelong struggle to really develop that empathy. How, how have you developed it and how would you encourage other people to develop it, Ben?
2: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I do think it's, there's such a natural instinct. We we talk in the book about um, the sort of can-do attitude that a lot of young people have, the idea of wanting to save the world. And it's, we said, it's, you know, it's this perfect, um, you know, if there's a problem out there, it can be solved. And if it can be solved, it can be solved by the power of your own intellect, just like a homework assignment in a liberal arts college, right? And we're like, it's the perfect attitude for a generation raised on the like the optimism of The West Wing and the, the clean logic of Freakonomics, right? It's everything is solvable, and and you just have to kind of sit down with it like a term paper. And I think that that's often a challenge. That's often something that I run into where Village Capital, you know, we're running twenty programs, twenty accelerators at any given point. We're doing future of work in Africa and justice tech in the U.S. and you know sustainability in Latam and at any given point, I think it's a good thing. I'll get excited. I'll be like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all learned up on, on ag tech in Latin America. This is going to be the future. This is everything. And I'll suddenly just get really into it and and push and say, this is what we need to be doing. This is, this is it. Let's go for it. And, you know, I forget that five days before I knew nothing about this topic and still only have a, you know, third hand understanding of it. And I think it's that constant ego checking, <laughs> you know, constantly um, saying I Am good at certain things. I might be a good manager. I might be a good project manager, um, good writer. Um, but it just really on a tactical level, you're going to want to get other people's opinions on this topic, and you're going to want to shape things, co-design things with other people. And there's no way to do that than to wake up every day and, and challenge your own ego, which is hard. Yeah.
1: An original it, title it, for the book was humility. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, that was one. That was one of the original titles that we, you know, it was a working title for a while. Um, obviously, yeah. we, we changed
2: it, but I think that ethos is still very much in the book. We also another working so, title was uh, "Losing Control," which people pointed out was a negative version of "Letting Go." But "Letting Go" was the positive. Like, yeah, no, that's right. Control yeah. sometimes a good thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, when I lose control, no one wants to be around me, so we don't we, we don't want to go there. Um, so Meg, let's talk about storytelling. Uh, you know. I'll give you seven hours to train me on how oh to be a better storyteller. <laughs> no, take a minute or two and, 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 and give me the key pointers. What do you think the, the key aspects of, of telling stories is to be effective at that?
1: Uh, oh, gosh. I think, I mean, my, my initial advice is, you know, you always have a beginning, middle, and end, which, se- which seems obvious. You'd be surprised at how many stories are missing one of those components. Um, including a detail or something about a character to get them to care up front. So, um, coming out of journalism, you know, my training was always, you should the first sentence of your article needs to say, get touch on the, you know, there was a fire in front of this street that happened at this time and it's now put you know other houses in jeopardy like i'm making this up but it was you hit all right. those notes right out of the gate sometimes that's the way to do that but other times like um other times you're building te- it's the way you build tension um and in this example you're talking about it from get uh you know there's a fire there's lots of tension when it's not something as you know rah rah is a fire you have to figure out what's what's the tension that i can build and how do i release it later later on in the arc of this story, what are the questions that um, that I need to answer. And one thing that I've um, one thing that I've found challenging as a storyteller that I'm still working on, even though I've been doing this for a really long time, is knowing how much information to share and knowing when to share it, um, especially if it's something you're really excited about. Uh, I, my other superpower is going off on random tangents and Ben has pulled me out of so many Wikipedia rabbit holes that had nothing to do with whatever we were looking up at the book, but it was such a cool story. And um, <laughs> so, so finding a way, um, finding, an, finding an arc, finding a focus, but finding ways to build that tension. What keeps us reading thrillers or watching TV shows is they build up what's going to happen, what's going to happen. And then they either tell you or they don't. And usually that's when you get the cliffhanger episode. And the best stand-up comics, the best writers for television, they, they just mastered managing that tension. So with a title like Letting Go, um, we were trying to introduce a little bit of that with what? letting go of what exactly? Why are we letting go? Wait, isn't philanthropy already letting go when they give away money? We were trying to introduce some questions, not enough to overwhelm the reader and say, I don't know what it's about, but enough to bring them in. Um, we opened with a story about Mark Zuckerberg at the premiere of The Social Network because if you're not a huge finance geek, that's a much more accessible place to start. So I could, I could definitely keep talking about this, but um, that's, a really, that's a really interesting question, and I think it comes back to how you can manage the tension that you need to have a full narrative arc.
0: Yeah. Oh. Well, Ben, as we think about empathy... It seems to me there is a direct application, and you alluded to this before, but I think there's a, a direct application for empathy in trying to do more participatory investing and in philanthropy. Why don't you color that in for us just a little bit?
2: I think a lot of people right now, really the past year and a half, uh, who work in finance and philanthropy investing, are looking for answers. Um, You know, the last year and a half has been pretty scary, pretty, um, a lot of uncertainty. Um, And I'll, you know, on the flip side, a lot of, a lot of um, people kind of rethinking how they approach um, their work. And there's a lot of soft ideas out there that, you know, I can sign a pledge and I can say, I'm going to, you know, listen more um, that are frankly insufficient, right? That are are fine and well and good, but are not going to get you there. Are you not going to help you kind of cross the finish line and also feel like you are doing, you know, being more empathetic? Um, and I think participatory grant making, participatory investing, whether it's on the institutional level or on the personal level, is um, it's a really radical action to take. I and mean, we, we try not to frame it as radical because at the end of the day, it is just grant making. It's like not rocket science. But the, the empathy part of it is radical. The idea that although my job might be grant officer, I am going to choose to outsource my job. Um, and um, that, I mean, we could go on, but like that's it. If you can do that, and it, not to say that it, we can get into it, it takes probably six to 12 months to divide, design one of these processes and it's a whole process. But if you can, if you can start the process of, of testing that out, piloting that for yourself, that is a radical act of empathy.
0: Yeah. And Meg, it seems to me that you, with respect to storytelling, that, that, that superpower is, is going to be most helpful for the, the participants, the, the, the people writing the grant proposals, the, the people who are um, representative of the group to be helped, served, or invested in that uh, want to share their perspective in a way that would help at least a well-intentioned grant maker or investor to understand a new perspective. Any advice for those folks on how to tell their story in an effective way to connect with the grant makers and the, and the investors?
1: Yeah. One, um, you know, just recently we uh, published a post on our, on our, we have a medium channel and We wrote about uh, the um, uh, funding for abortion rights because of what's happening in Texas. But we also um, wrote about several of the women's funds, many of which are participatory. And there was a comment from one of the activists um, who was dissatisfied with traditional philanthropy and sought funding from Frida the Young Feminist Fund And her comment, uh, I'm paraphrasing, was, you know, the traditional philanthropy did not speak our language. they were asking us these questions about things that didn't matter to us or the work that we were doing. We didn't understand why we were being asked them. They wanted us to have, you know, a, a truckload of documents and we were a new organization. It just, she, but she kept the thing, she basically said they don't, we don't speak the same language. Um, I think storytelling is a universal language, and the question is how to fit that in, how to align it, how to align um, align the need for storytelling among uh, funders with participants. That there's usually on the participant side, um, yes, needing to learn how to tell your story, and on the um, funder side, not expecting. Also, having that humility of like they're not going to get it right the first time. Um, when Mama Cash, uh, which is one of the women's funds that uh, that made the transition to becoming fully participatory, and they found that their staff, rather than kind of being grant analysts and making all these decisions, they were facilitating um, the process of having their current and former grantees uh, review applications and vote, which was the participatory process they agreed on. They were given, so they were given this role. And they were also trained in how to do it. Um, We've had conversations with others in this field that, you know, there is a wrong way to do participatory grant making. And that wrong way uh, is among other things, just saying, okay, here you go. Like pick a, pick a grantee, any grantee, like have fun. And no one's reviewed grant applications before then uh, that's not, (laughs) it's not, it's not going to go very well. So it's how do we build capacity in one another and, I think storytelling can be can be a new way to do that, but I think it starts with that. It starts with building trust on in that individual level to um, And understanding that we're here to s- uh, both the philanthropy and the um, and the grantee are there to support one another. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I think that's that's critical. Critical. Well. Um, Ben and Meg, I'm really grateful that you would take the time to, to come visit. I appreciate you sharing insights that are this profound. I'm I'm excited about uh, participatory, you know, grant making and and investing, and uh, even even as I say that, and I am genuinely excited about it. I see the the fear, apprehension, and concerns of the investors and grant makers, and including, you know, the the the. Staff, you know, the, the folks making $75,000 a year making grants, feeling like their jobs are threatened. And so there's, there's a whole lot going on here, but th- this is a vitally important conversation. And I'm, I thank you for starting it with your book and thank you for joining me today to talk about it. Um, Meg and then Ben, let me invite you both as we wrap up now to just take a minute and tell people how they can uh, get the book. Connect with you personally, learn more about what you're doing, et cetera, um, and you know, include your social media handles or whatever you want to share.
1: Uh, sure. So you can order the book at lettinggobook.org. Uh That's where you can get hardcover copies. Uh, if you're an ebook um, person, you can get it on Amazon Kindle. If you search for "Letting Go," Ben Robel McMassie. Turns out there's a few books on Amazon named "Letting Go." We're the one that's not religious. <laughs> um, <laughs> And um and as as for me personally, uh, my website is megmassey.co um, and you can also find me on Twitter at miss megmassy MS megmassy. Meg
2: Excellent Ben uh, Sure. you can learn about Village Capital and our participatory model at philcap.com um, and the best way to reach me I, I've actually kicked my Twitter addiction, which I'm pretty proud of, but I'm on LinkedIn all the time. Uh, you can just find me on LinkedIn.
0: Okay. Fantastic. Well, thank you both again for being here today. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, insights, and your incredible book. And we wish you every success with the book and spreading that message uh, and to have that pervasive influence to really shift the way we do investing and grant making in the world to better serve the people we hope to serve. So thank you and and best wishes. Thanks, Devin.
1: Thank you.
0: All righty. Let's do some good. Thank you for tuning in to the Superpowers for Good show. Twice each week, we host changemakers who share their impact, insights, and superpowers. Don't miss another episode. Subscribe today at superpowersforgood.com. That's superpowers number four, good.com. Be super empowered. Get your copy of the book, Superpowers for Good, as an ebook, audiobook, paperback, or hardcover edition via your favorite online retailer. Interested in having me speak to your company, organization, or association? Visit devonthorpe.com. Then, let's talk. Now, keep using your superpowers for good. Together, we can reverse climate change, improve global health, and eradicate poverty.